Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I hope that all is well with you today. Of course, uh, if you're going to Burning Man this year, you are really busy right now because, well, there are only 40 days left until the man burns. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make it again this year. Uh, Although I've done Burning Man in a tent a couple of times, I've now reached a point in my life where I'll only be going on a burn when I can afford to rent a motorhome for the event. (laughs) I've gotten soft in my old age. And the good news is that I've been putting a little money aside for that purpose each year. So uh, the next time that you're going to see me at Burning Man is going to be in 2022 when I'll be celebrating my 80th birthday there. So how's that for uh, old man's long-range planning? (laughs) But uh, getting back to the here and now, what do you say about the two of us listening to the next part of the Terrence McKenna workshop that I've been playing these past several weeks? So uh, let's join him and a few of his friends on a Saturday afternoon in May of 1990. And that language may have existed a very long time before anybody got the idea that you could use a certain sound like glass to mean a certain complex object. Because on psilocybin, uh, glossolalia is frequently triggered. Glossolalia is normally presented as speaking in tongues, a religious phenomenon of fundamentalism. And the fundamentalist spin on it is that these are ancient biblical languages and that you're being um, possessed by an angel or something. But in fact... At the primitive level of religion worldwide, glossolalia is frequently met with. And all of us have an ability to relax away from meaning and still retain syntax. It's just something you would never do because we're programmed to always mean something when we speak. But in fact, babies don't do this at all. They, they love to babble. And they only late in the process learn to attach meaning. Well, so then under, the, under language in the humble service of meaning, there is language uh, for itself, sort of the ding on sish of language. And... Uh, Well, I'll give an example of it and then discuss what's going on. Okay, now what's happening here? First of all, Ordinarily, we associate this speed of vocal noise with words. Words are small mouth noises. That's all they are. You see, if you're going to have a creature which communicates among members of its species, you have to have a low-energy form of communication. Otherwise, you'd be exhausted from the effort to communicate. Well, small mouth noises are great. A person can talk for about 12 hours without stopping fairly effortlessly. I mean, if you've got water and 
a little dope rolled. And, uh, it's, it's not a problem. Well, do you know how much information a person could convey in 12 hours if they were, say, reading the telephone book aloud? It's pretty amazing. Uh, so this thing I just did, it had syntax, but it had no meaning. In other words, if you listen to it, you hear that sounds repeat, rhythms repeat, there appear to be prefixes, suffixes, certain kinds of declensions. It's all there, folks. It just doesn't mean anything. But it turns out that the activity of language feels like language, whether it means anything or not. Well, in the psychedelic state, you discover uh, this same set of tinker toys that was used to create the little speech I just did can be used to create sculptures that are free form. That uh, this this he why waxi kuvini malhakti kipipit it looks a certain way. What's important is not how it sounds. What's important is how it looks. In the Amazon, in these ayahuasca cults, they have what they call ikaros, magical songs. Ikaros are uh, visual art. They are intended that way, and they're criticized that way, and their success or failure is judged entirely in the visual domain, and yet they are made out of sound. And what they convey are very complex feelings. You could almost say three-dimensional feelings. Feelings so complex that they won't lay down and be a sound like hate, fear, revulsion. They won't do that. They can only be laid out as grammatical objects of a higher order. And I think that... um, This process is happening in human beings, the push toward visible language. But it's being accelerated by the psychedelics and that we are trying to become for each other visual objects and we are trying to become uh, capable of generating these things. Now, why I hold these conclusions is because in the DMT flash, which is the most intense quintessence, most quintessential distillation of this kind of stuff, you encounter the shamanic entities, the spirits, the ancestors. And this is really confounding. I mean, we can put up with shifting cobwebs of color and weird insights about our nostrils and our little fingers, but not entities. And yet, in that space, these things exist and they're preaching this ontological transformation of language. This is how entities in hyperspace communicate. It's as though everything has had one dimension added on to it. It's as though we are existing in some kind of squashed version of a larger superspace that can simply be mentally unfolded through the act of encountering a psychedelic substance. I think it's big news that these entities exist. Uh, Now, if you were to go to a shaman in a classical culture and say, what's what's it about? What's going on here? 
they would unhesitatingly tell you that these are the ancestors. Say, oh yes, these are the ancestors. We work, we cure using the ancestors. And this is, I think, very unsettling for us as Westerners. It, we'd much rather accept the notion of friendly extraterrestrials communicating through the mushroom than that this is the dearly departed. I mean, that really, you can feel your boundaries beginning to quake against that possibility. It was very interesting. Recently, there was a new edition of uh, Evans Vince's The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, which if you've never read it, it's quite an interesting book. Y.E. Evans Vance was an American who became a great scholar of Mahayana Buddhism and wrote the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, and so forth. But his doctoral thesis when he was a young folklore student at Cambridge in 1911 was he wanted to study the fairy faith. And he went to Brittany and Wales and Ireland and interviewed the oldest people in the districts, the crones and the old, old people. And it's a wonderful uh, book to read because these people just tell these stories and it's absolutely convincing. I mean, the fairies are real, the fairy faith is real. And when you asked, when, when Evans Vance asked these people, you know, what's going on? They said, uh, well, these are, these are the dead. When you die, you, you stay around, but you're in an invisible realm, and it's an ecology of souls. My phrase, not his, an ecology of souls. But this is what is revealed on DMT, is entities that are so strange that they could easily pass for extraterrestrials. What's puzzling about them is their tremendous humor and affection and intense involvement in us as human beings. Why are they there? What do they want? And they're not, uh, if they are ancestors, they're not my ancestors. In other words, when I broke in there, I didn't find my mother and my grandparents. It wasn't like that. There was no personal... It isn't like that. But there is this sense of uh, affection, interest, caring. Well, we have the doctrine of purgatory in Western theology in the Catholic Church. I had always assumed, thinking about it, that, that purgatory must have been a doctrine that the Church Fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius and that crowd, had written into the the gospel message for their own purposes. I discovered, to my amazement, that that isn't what happened at all, that St. Patrick is the person responsible for purgatory because he, he wrote purgatory into Christian doctrine in order to convert the Celtic peasantry of Ireland to the idea that fairyland and the Christian afterlife were the same place. And it was thought such a good idea in Rome that the doctrine became canon law generally for the church. So, so purgatory is a spruced up, cleaned up version of Irish fairyland 
to, to make it a little more palatable. Well, you see, we... This is where our anxieties come in and where it's hard to push it much further than this. An extraterrestrial contact, I think we could probably ride that through and it would be amazing, but it would be tolerable. But if what's happening is that at the end of history are waiting the dead and that our notion of reality is so skewed that we don't even know the most basic facts about the cycles of life and death and rebirth, then it's going to be uh, quite astonishing for us, I think, to come to terms with this. And yet, this is what, this is what shamans live with. This is they, what they tell you. They say, you know, a shaman is a person who can pass daily through the gates of death and return. We see into the other realm. We see into hyperspace. As inheritors of the rational tradition, this is pretty hard for us to swallow because I think, I mean, maybe it's not true anymore, but in my personal process of rejecting Catholicism, I did manage to convince myself that when you're dead, it's over with. And it's been very hard for me to fight my way back to the notion that that might be just 100% malarkey and nothing more than a conservative first try. And now I think much more in terms of dimensionality and that I don't know what a form is, but the process of the fertilization of an egg, of any organism, it doesn't have to be a human being, the life of that organism, and then its death and dissolution, is the process of a form descending from hyperspace, clothing itself in matter, and then withdrawing from, from matter, returning to hyperspace. And this concept of hyperspace is very, very necessary to understanding this stuff. Because if you look at what shamans do that is so confounding, they find lost objects, they cure disease, they rescue lost souls, they discern uh, secret acts, infidelities, thefts, poisonings, stuff like that. All of these magical things that they do are completely non-mysterious if we grant the idea of a higher spatial dimension. I mean, if, if, we, if there's a higher spatial dimension, then, you know, this section is not zipped. There's a part of it which is completely open to the world. This room is not closed. There's one direction in which it's absolutely open to the air. In other words, in hyperspace, nothing is hidden. Yeah. Give yourself a chance to, to breathe for a moment. Uh, why do you think it is? I mean, we, we as human beings uh, have evolved with pretty much all the equipment we need to get along and do things. Why do you think it is that we have evolved with such a poor understanding or, or no understanding of, of these matters of which you speak? The, uh, the afterlife, uh, the rebirth. I mean, we hear it. We, many people, they hear it and, and they have a curiosity and they go towards it. But few people understand it. Well, I, I think this is a very recent phenomenon uh, of, uh, you know, it, culture is a narrowing 
obviously. I mean, if a man can have ten wives, two wives, no wives, one wife, well, then you go into a culture, you're going to make a choice. And all, all cultures represent narrowing of choices. Uh, we don't know how we could be. We don't know what we could be if we were free to evolve ourselves. I think that's the, the starting line that we're edging up on. We're about to have a chance to create a global culture to decide, to, to essentially clean our basement and decide what we're going to save and what we're going to keep. This sense of not being connected is, to my mind, entirely rooted to what I've said here several times, the problem of the ego, but then to you know get a little more specific and maybe slightly more offensive, uh, it's the monotheistic religions that have to take a real knock for the present situation. Uh, monotheism, as a philosophical reflex, is understandable but simple-minded. I mean, it's what an eight-year-old would get to. You know, I mean, one God, reasonable, economical, seems to fit the situation pretty well. So what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with it is you've got to be a little more uh, uh, sensitive. Philosophy is not practiced in a void. And as unions know well, we mirror ourselves in our gods. Our religions are a set of permissions for how we as individuals can be. And monotheism presents us with the notion that God should be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and unforgiving. And male. male. Well, this is nobody you would invite to a garden party. (laughs) This is what we call an asshole, you know. (laughs) Somebody who corners you, who's never wrong, who's totally full of their opinion, who just wants to tell you how the boar ate the cabbage and never doubts themselves. A boar. So we have enshrined at the center of our cultural machinery the archetype of the unbearable boar, and then we've gone out uh, to realize it. And... uh, we try to fine-tune it. You know, we say, okay, well, this Old Testament religion with all this ritual and dietary, this isn't it. So then along comes Christ and tries to fine-tune it. But, you know, he's working in the most women-repressing, male-dominator, hierarchical structure on the planet, and whatever good he does is quickly wiped out 150 years later by these clowns I mentioned, Eusebius, Irenaeus, and the rest of those guys. And then uh, Islam comes along to twist the screws yet tighter on this monotheistic ideal. And um, it doesn't serve. And it was put in place because people tried to figure it out on their own. Monotheism is what you come to if, full of sincerity, you try to figure it out on your own. But if you will just forget being full of sincerity and take mushrooms, you will never come to this monotheistic conclusion. Uh, it, it just appears preposterous because the multiplicity, the shifting, unpredictable, boundaryless, maternal 
nature of things is what forces its uh, presence into your consciousness. We are we are born in the mystery. It's all around us. Everything is provisional. Uh, and this is something worth talking about, I suppose, because it's a psychedelic point of view. Every society has always believed that it possessed 95% of the truth and that the next 5% would fall into place in the next 15 years. And yet these societies have just been all over the map, you know? And we don't understand anything. Uh, and w- in fact, we have taken a, a more perverse turn than most. We have substituted the incomprehensible. That's why we get these quarks and mu mesons and tensor equations of the third degree. We actually worship incomprehensibility as the highest form of explanation of what's going on. Say, well, I don't know what's going on. Somebody must understand it. Well, I've got news for you. If you don't understand it, what good is it that somebody understands it somewhere? I mean, you're responsible for yourself. And yet, I think uh, that you know all this technology—you know, two and a half billion dollars worth of atom, atom smashers—is at some level is being inspired by something transcendental, and is you know they're trying to achieve love and Godhead and all that stuff. We want to know. We do want to know. And to science's credit, and this is what I love about science, is that it's not kidding itself. I mean, the thing that the, the thing that I go back to over and over again and that makes psychedelics different and that makes what I'm doing different is you're not asked to believe anything. You just have to do something. In other words, you're invited to perform an experiment, not accept a belief. And uh, taking a psychedelic is an experiment. It's not an act of religious devotion. I mean, you may do it in a devoted and religiously sensitized way, but it's an experiment to see what happens. And if it works, it can be repeated. Uh, Delusion is a terrible thing. And the world, there's a lot of it in the world, and probably psychedelics have to take the blame for some of this. I mean, all these rishis, roshis, geishas, and gurus that are running around with their hands out, this is largely, uh, can be put at the feet of psychedelics. But, uh, you mean, why should we blame psychedelics for this? I don't think anybody would have given any of this a thought if they hadn't had psychedelic experiences to show them that the mind is not what they assume it to be. I mean, the great impetus to Eastern religion came in the 60s when all of this, uh, all of this stuff was happening. I wanted to ask a little further about the animal experience of time and uh, that they are stuck in the point present. They don't have a sense of future or past, and my own experience with uh, marijuana is I lose my short-term memory, and in my foolish days when I used to try to drive after getting really stoned, I remember looking to the right, and it's clear, and I look to the left, and it's clear, but I forgot what it is on the right, so I look to the right, and it's clear, but I forgot what it is on the 
and I'm going like this, and I can't hold anything in my mind for even that long. And it's terrible, you know. When you're driving, it's awful. But but uh, I, don't, I don't find it pleasant in, in any sense. Uh, you know, when you read, you forget a paragraph, and uh-huh. you go on to the next paragraph. And I um, I wondered if that's somewhat like the animal experiences life, or and also I wondered if that was an attribute of uh, mushrooms and ayahuasca. That loss of short-term memory. That, I, don't, I don't particularly like that experience. I don't like that either. I really don't like it when it's acute. Uh, but I don't think that's necessarily a part of it. I mean, it's you know you don't want to try and pigeonhole the psychedelic experience because what it is is it's everything. I mean, once you think you've got it figured out and that it's always going to be this, and then the next time it's completely. Uh, completely something else so much can be done so much can be structured and learned I mean I think basically the kind of psychedelic experiences most of us have been having have been just reconnoitering you know we sail over the territory and photograph the landscape and take it back and study it but what you could do if you landed down there what you could do if you actually learned the way of it is I think uh, you know, it's very inviting, in spite of the fact that psychedelics have been around for you know fifty thousand, a hundred thousand years. I still can't shake the impression that it's going to have a historical impact. That that you know they're going to eventually get around to noticing how odd it is, and noticing that it's right in the center of ourselves. The, the real problem is getting the word out about what it is. So many people have taken a little bit of LSD or a little bit of psilocybin or something, and then they think they know what the psychedelic experience is. But you have to spend time poking around, and you have to take chances, and eventually the ice will break underneath you, and to your absolute horror, the thing you have been trying to cause to happen will then happen. But you almost always have to trick yourself, trap yourself into it. I don't know what the limit of this stuff is. I certainly have been as stoned as I ever want to get. I mean, I said at the time, let it be noted. I don't ever want to be more loaded than this. <clears throat> yeah. The film that I'm trying to get produced... Uh, in its um, message side, it deals with the issue of what do we let go of and what do we hold on to in this shrinking world of our own ethnic heritage. And as the world shrinks, there's a move towards uh, homogeneity. And what's really happening right now is people are really pulling back into their in-group. I mean, the Muslims have done this most profoundly because it's very frightening to have to all become one and the idea of all being a consumer white bread homogeneity is a a, a horrible image but um, the thing that people are willing to share I find is their cuisine everybody's willing to eat and explore and relish in each other's food but the thing that nobody's willing to give up or few are willing to give up are their languages and you you can see they're talking about Quebec uh, seceding again from Canada it's but that there's something about uh, our attachment to language that's really uh, potent. And uh, you're giving up not just uh, 
I mean, it's a worldview. It is really ourself. I mean, that, our, that we also are made of language. I said the world is made of language. Note that you are part of that world and are made of language. I don't know whether the appetite for stuff will drive people to abandon their fear of merging. I, I think, you know, a lot is going to be lost. A lot has been lost. I mean, the, the extinction of the mammals that began 50,000 years ago, it was 50,000 years ago that was the greatest number of mammal species on Earth. There's been steadily falling species since about that time, mostly due to human predation. And, you know, we're not going to bring back the giant ground sloth and the woolly mammoth and the glyptodont. They're gone for good. And uh, there's no getting away from the poignancy of this process. Uh, the cruise is over. We're in the lifeboats. The ship is going to sink. The question is, how does this adventure end? But there's no question that there's going to be a lot of loss and redefinition. I mean, usually in these weekends we get to a place where it comes down to being, you know, this thing about the, the space issue. Because people love it and they hate it. And it has a lot to do with how you relate to the male ego because it's the engineering dream come true, you know, that, and nature disappears. You replace it with black vacuum, and you say, here we will erect the, the palaces and whorehouses of the human imagination. We can make them the size of moons. We can do this and that. But, uh, and the beauty that w is within us gives me a lot of hope for that. My God, the, the expression of the design process in this world is certainly awful. I mean, we, our world is visually hideous, the part of it touched by human beings. But that's very puzzling to me, because when you take psychedelics, you discover within the human body-mind the same kind of transcendent beauty that you see in the rainforest and the arctic tundra and all that. I mean, immense beauty, and yet we seem to have a very hard time translating it into the design process. Art is, uh, you know, we haven't really talked that much about art in relationship to all this, but the politics of the situation here in this mil millennial crisis I think the, res the reasonable response is to push the art pedal right through the floor. The way to escape the present cul-de-sac is an enormous outbreak of creativity of all sorts. We just need to overwhelm ourselves with creative expression. This could be very easily done. We've been in the habit of binding about 60% of our social energy into a standing crop of weapons. And, you know, whatever creativity is expressed in the production and design of these weapons, it goes on between, behind closed doors in the most excessively testosterone-festered environment you can possibly imagine, which is a military weapons research laboratory. But if we weren't caught up in that, if we could really direct the resources the way we want, we have no idea how rich 
we are and how perverse our uh, distribution of resources is. I mean, uh, a single F-16 fighter plane standard equipage costs $120 million. One of these fighter planes. They order them in lots of 500. If somebody were to give $120 million to the new age, define that any way you like, or to me, or to you, but that's a lot of money. But if you spend it on a fighter plane... It's not a lot of money. You can park a fighter plane in an area twice the size of this room, and there it sits, useless unless Armageddon should come along. It's about the most useless thing you could do with $120 million. And yet, if you gave that to the sincere, the insincere, the half-sincere, and let them all go off and do with it what they want, society would be a much richer place and many more interesting possibilities would be developed. So uh, part, part of uh, saving the world, I think, is to make people angry, to make people absolutely uh, furious with the way we are being managed. The human enterprise is being managed by idiots. And, you know, I don't say they're vindictive idiots, but the case could certainly be made, but give or take that... They're idiots, and we we don't have forever, you know. In fact, we have, I think, a very short amount of time to take hold and to insist that human values, which none of us have much trouble accessing, I mean, I'm not saying we're all Albert Schweitzer, but we know what it means to be Albert Schweitzer. Why are our institutions unable to project the human values that we personally are able to feel? And then why do we tolerate that? Why are boys in charge of everything? It just doesn't make any kind of sense. Uh, working our way out of this is just going to require shock treatment. And that's what this shamanic option represents. I mean, I wouldn't preach this if I didn't think the situation were fairly desperate. It's, it's a radical option. It's not a reasonable option. It's a quick fix, because quick is the only fix that counts now. This is not a debating society, the crisis confronting this planet. It's a life-or-death situation. Uh, I don't see any other option. Yeah. Charles, is there any value in, in looking at the dichotomy of the self, the, the natural evolutionary self-destruction of the planet, the uh, toxicity, of, toxicity of volcanic eruptions, the ice ages, the uh, shifting of the uh, axis of the, uh, the polar axis and uh, plate tectonics? All that is going on, and we seem to be a minor player in the rearrangement of matter in, uh, on the planet compared to what it, is, what it naturally does itself. And what about that? What about that? Yeah. Well, you're right. Um, the Earth is now understood to be an extremely dynamic environment, um, locally and globally. 
as a local example that some of you can relate to. In the last 100,000 years, tidal waves up to 2,000 feet high have occurred locally in the Hawaiian Islands because of sloughing off the face of those islands into deep-sea trenches. The International Geophysical Congress has held meetings about this. I've seen the physical evidence of it myself. A 2,000-foot tidal wave, you would shit white inside it. I mean, it's just inconceivable, you know. A 50-foot tidal wave is appalling. Uh, on a global scale, 65 million years ago, something crashed down uh, on this planet, and nothing on this planet larger than a chicken walked away from it. You know, dramatic, you bet. This happened between breakfast and lunch one day. Uh, so, yes, I think the, the Earth is a very dynamic place, and part of this psychedelic message is, uh, you know, shake the mud off your shoes, monkeys. You can't always count on it to be like it is. I mean, I mean the mushroom has a kind of a hortatory personality, and it sometimes says things which I don't necessarily agree with that are slightly alarming. I mean, one of its favorite themes is, if you don't have a plan, you're going to end up part of somebody else's plan. And it's speaking to me as a person, it's speaking to human beings as a species. If you don't have a plan, you're going to end up being part of somebody else's plan. The sun has a limited lifespan. There are serious problems with the sun that are not discussed at all much, except in the scientific literature. Uh, it would take major revisions of nuclear theory, which has been in place without revision for nearly 50 years. It would take major revisions of nuclear theory to explain why there isn't something wrong with the sun. The sun is not... Uh, emitting neutrinos at nearly the rate it should be if it's a healthy atomic furnace. Is it possible that sometime in the last 100,000 years the nuclear fires of the sun have actually slipped off the main sequence? This is an appalling possibility. You see, if that were to happen the neutrino flux from the, from the nuclear furnace at the center of the sun would instantly drop. Uh, it would be measured within eight minutes on the Earth, the drop in the neutrino flux. But all physical manifestations of this process would not appear for about 70,000 years the period of time it takes for core solar material to percolate to the surface. So the neutrino drop would be registered virtually instantly, but it would take 70,000 years for any other thing. Well, uh, you know, if that's what's happening, if the sun is, in, is going into some state of instability, well, then we look back in the geological record, and what do you see? Nine times in the past five million years, ice five miles deep has moved south from the poles. Well, what the hell is that about? And you go further back in the record, and you don't find this. People don't realize this. This planet existed for close to five billion years before there was glaciation. Glaciation is a brand new phenomenon on this planet. Why is it happening? 
Well, the obvious place to look is the energy dynamics of the home star. Is it possible, then, that we're riding an edge more precarious than we know? Is it possible that bios, life on this planet, actually senses limitations and constraints? And that we are, we have been summoned. We are a, we, I I mentioned stopgap solutions. We are a stopgap solution. (laughs) About two million years ago, the biospheric mind of the planet said, my God, the sun has just gone off the main sequence. We have approximately a million years to organize some kind of uh, arc out of here. A species must be deputized to release energy and to manipulate matter. This species must be brought forward and made dominant species over the earth. And out of that technology, we can perhaps fashion an escape. In other words, uh, you know, we are something that has been called forth out of nature because of unusual dynamics on a very large scale. Well, this is a possibility. Um, Sure. I had a fantasy since I heard your first, heard your take about the evolution of the brain, the next evolution. That, uh, I mean, it doesn't make any rational sense, but we don't always have rational sense of it. Um, that what about the mushroom growing within the brain? I mean, actually not taking it in, but you mean becoming physically symbiotic. Being in, yeah. Well. Um, Yeah, I mean, Brian Aldiss wrote a book called The Long Afternoon of Earth in which he envisioned a human-fungal symbiosis that was so close that people actually had a lump on their shoulder and it went directly into the head. Uh, I find this kind of thing a little uh, too uh, creature (laughs) feature-ish, but... uh, But it is, it, I mean, I have had the notion, it, not a notion, it was more like a delusion at certain times, that, and I can't explain it to you, I will just tell it to you, that uh, there are, th- that the really the big secret about human beings is that there are three sexes, male, female, and mushroom. And uh, this third sex is some, I mean, I haven't worked out the genetics of it or how in the world we could have gotten so far without understanding this, but it's that notion that it's wedded into us at that level. And, of course, the mushroom, I don't know if it's this way for for women, too, and it, it's, it's subtle, it's smart, it's tricky, 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 and it uses you against yourself, not viciously. It's just very matter-of-factly knows a hundred times more about you than you do yourself. And it presents itself as this 4D girlfriend, you know. It's the, the soror mystica of alchemy. It's the invisible female companion. Yeah. I had a dream a few months ago that... Uh, I don't know if I gave birth or someone gave birth to these these children who were like part mushroom, you know, and they were part fungus. And I felt very loving for, towards them, but they were actually like, you know, beings, you know, but they were like part mushroom and part human. 
It was all very sweet, you know, it wasn't ghoulish or anything. Well, yeah, I mean, I, the symbiosis is coming together. One of the funny insights that I had that I don't try to make sense of, that I in fact don't believe, but I thought it, and it, it was an emotionally opening thought, though it's absurd on the face of it, was when I was in the Amazon in these pastures, looking at these pastures full of these mushrooms, I kept thinking, you know, it's the lost part of the human brain. It's the part, it's that part of us is in these four, in these fields. That this, this mushroom, this, this is human flesh, this flesh. It's a strange kind of human, but hell, we're about to give legal rights to fetuses. We might as well extend legal rights to mushrooms and make them voting citizens. Because, you see, it's intelligent. It's intelligent. It loves you. It can blow your mind. It can make you laugh. It can make you cry. Uh, There's no other way to relate to something like that except to love it in spite of yourself. I mean, you know, this is how you seduce someone. You make them laugh. You make them cry. You move them. You get them to drop their barriers you get them to not be afraid. This is what it does to us. It's, it's, it seduces us back in to this relationship. And I think we return to it with an immense sense of relief. It's just like, ah, you know. When I was in Guatemala, I did not take a deep breath for, for, for three weeks because I could feel the oppression the artificiality of it, you know, it's in the air, the evil, and you don't even, you get used to it, but when you cross back into Mexico, you just say, my God, you know, what was that? And, and that's what history is for us, you know, we're living under siege conditions here, no wonder it's a little hard to connect up with your higher self. We're living in a foxhole, for God's sake. But, you know, if we could realize our situation, then there would be a possibility of change. I wanted to mention another thing which I recently read about that's imperiling the biosphere, uh, that is uh, bovine flatulence. Methane. (laughs) Apparently, it was just really uh, struck me as... I just hadn't, but something like 160 million tons of methane is produced from bovine flatulence. And as the appetites, as the, the citizens' appetite for meat goes up and the number of cattle is increased, then this problem you know, continues to contribute to the greenhouse effect, and we're all going to be cooked because of bovine flatulence. <laughs> Killed by cow farts. <laughs> Well, nobody said life wasn't fraught with peril, right? <laughs> or humor. Or humor, yes. <laughs> well, on that flatulent note, uh, why don't we break off here? You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, thanks a lot, Terence. With all the problems in this world that we have to deal with right now, 
you go and tell us that the sun may be entering extremis and uh, may have begun the process of burning out. <laughs> well, as uh, Pa Kettle would say, isn't that a fine kettle of fish? <laughs> so uh, let me get this right. The sun seems to be losing its energy and is sending less heat energy our way. And so us careless humans, without even planning it, have uh, caused global warming as a stopgap measure with which to offset this problem. (laughs) Now, I don't for a minute believe that argument, but if you are into uh, late-night dorm room talks, well, this could be an interesting one to discuss with your uh, astrophysics, nuclear engineering, and ecology classmates. For uh, I certainly don't have enough knowledge to be able to intelligently discuss it myself. Keep in mind, I'm just a carnival barker, remember? All of the action is in the tent, which is your own mind. And uh, you happen to be in the center ring of the main tent. Now, I can't remember which podcast it was in, but on at least one other occasion, Terrence spoke about the uh, W.Y. Evans Wentz's book, The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries. In fact, uh, after uh, he mentioned it one time, one of our fellow slunners sent me a copy of it, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And the reason I'm mentioning it again right now is because I realized that even though the Disney Corporation seems to have made it almost impossible for anyone else to build a story from one of the Brothers Grimm's fairy tales, I don't think that uh, the Disney people have gotten their dirty hands on Wentz's book yet. So, if you're a writer who is looking for some old myths to bring alive, well, and particularly as a children's story, well, I think that uh, you can find a lot of inspiration in this book, which uh, I'll link to in today's program notes in case you're interested. And as you know, you can get to them via psychedelicsalon.us. Also, uh, Terrence spoke of what he called the entities in DMT space. In fact, he even said, and I quote, I think it's big news about these entities, end quote. Now, that was said by Terence McKenna over 25 years ago, but the world apparently wasn't ready for his idea yet. However, just one week ago, Philip Smith wrote an article for Alternet that is titled, Do Entities from Another Universe Inhabit the Brains of Psychedelic DMT Users? And the subtitle read, There is something strange, very strange, going on inside the heads of people using the fast-acting psychedelic. Machine elves, anyone? End quote. (laughs) So uh, perhaps the rest of the world is now beginning to catch up with the mind of McKenna. And if you are interested in uh, reading that article, you can go to the Psychedelic Salon magazine on Flipboard, which I'll also link to in today's program notes. One of the other stories that I've posted there is titled, 10 Reasons Why Federal Medical Marijuana Prohibition is About to Go Up in Smoke. There uh, probably isn't anything in that article that you don't already know, but it is fascinating to see all of these facts in a single essay. Did you realize that as of today, there are now 40 states in which cannabis is legal for medical uses? The times, they are a-changing. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.